Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Charlotte Stiadi, visiting fellow from ICS Yusof Ishak Institute in Singapore. Today, we will be talking about urban activism among kampung communities or urban villages in Jakarta. Jakarta's kampung communities have received considerable attention in the last few months because of the highly controversial Jakarta gubernatorial election in which former Christian ethnic Chinese incumbent Basuki Cahaya Purnama, popularly known as Ahok, was defeated amidst heated religious campaigning by Islamist factions and a blasphemy trial that eventually saw Ahok sentenced to two years in jail. While most of the coverage focused on identity politics, Ahok's track record of forced evictions of kampung communities was also a point of heated contention. Many of these kampung residents had voted for Jokowi and Ahok when they ran for governor and vice governor of Jakarta in 2012, and they were deeply disappointed by Ahok's actions, which they argued were in breach of the campaign promise of no evictions made back in 2012. The kampung residents and activist groups condemned these evictions as unlawful and undemocratic. Yet many Jakartans argue that evictions are necessary measures to fix the city's notorious traffic jam problems and seasonal floodings. Many also argue that the evictions are justified since many of the kampung dwellers do not possess certificates of ownership for the lands that they occupy. Is there a middle ground here? Jakarta's kampungs have existed for a very long time, but can they coexist with residential, infrastructure, and commercial projects planned for Jakarta? To discuss these issues further, today, we are joined by Dr. Rita Padawangi. Rita is a senior lecturer at Singapore University of Social Sciences. She was previously a senior fellow at the Asian Urbanisms Cluster at the Asia Research Institute, National University of Singapore. Rita is a passionate researcher and proponent of participatory urban development and has worked with kampung communities in Jakarta to get the government to engage in more dialogue with kampung residents in urban planning. Rita, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting, Charlotte. I look forward to our chat. But um, first of all, many of our listeners may not be so familiar with the topic of um, kampungs in Jakarta. And most Jakartans today, if you speak to them, associate kampungs um, with slum areas, either on the dirty riverbanks or on the outskirt of residential complexes. However, kampungs have been an essential part of the evolution of Jakarta as a city. Um, I was wondering, perhaps you can tell us a brief history of Jakarta's kampungs and how they came to be the marginal communities that we know today. Okay, um, yeah, I understand where you came from with this question because I also find it uh, more and more challenging to um, connect with uh, most of um, others or friends in Jakarta who are not... Um, who who tends to be uh, who find it difficult to sympathize with um, kampung communities and kampung life and uh, in my research in Jakarta I've been following I, I cannot say that I followed all kampungs in Jakarta but from the kampungs that I followed in Jakarta uh, some of them including kampung Bukit Duri, kampung Pulo or kampung Luar Batang Um, I found that actually a lot of these kampongs have very deep historical roots uh, in the city and a lot of them actually uh, came about many, many years ago. Take a look at the examples of Kampung Bukit Duri and Kampung Pulo, for example. If you see the old maps from the Dutch uh, period, you would actually see them. And right. even uh, Kampung Bukit Duri, if you see the map of the train line that was established by uh, the Dutch at that time, 
Kampung Bukiduri was already on the map even before uh, Stasiun Manggarai was built. And so um, the existence of these kampungs actually have long, long uh, historical roots, as I said. But we never really heard about the kampongs no, uh, no. when we were in school. And yeah. I was also subjected to that. So that's why I also say that this is uh, something also that I'm still continuing to learn because I feel that my interest in Jakarta is on the sociology and also, like you said, on um, the social activism. Yeah. But when I start to see social activism in terms of kampongs, in terms of participatory planning for kampongs, um, I found that it's actually very important to look into the historical background. I mean, I don't need to be the historian myself, but knowing how they came to be is actually very important too in order to move forward. Um, and uh, to come back to your question just now that you know a lot of people actually think that they are newcomers, establish themselves without land certificate and all those things. Well, it's actually yes and no. Yeah, because a lot of these kampongs, like I said, are old kampongs. Right. But in the past, they were not as dense. So if you look into the maps and also the old pictures of Kampung Pulo, for example, you don't see houses as dense as uh, they are now. Actually, uh, their houses can be like detached houses. Um, it's because um, in the past, uh, the area was actually... Um, plantation um, and so um, it's it used to be sort of like a forested area and then it got some you know concession to um, uh, some people actually got concession to actually develop or cut, cultivate the land and so it started off not as dense as the Kampung Pulo we know now right now it's probably one of the densest kampongs yeah um, so when we talk about the history uh, the kampongs don't really look like what they are now. But um, we can still see the traces of it in terms of how they socially relate with each other. They tend to be uh, close-knit, they tend to know each other very well, they tend to involve in informal economies, uh, self-sufficient and all those things. Um, but um, with the development of Indonesia, and Jakarta specifically, because as we know, um, after independence and especially after the New Order period, during the New Order period, a lot of the resources are concentrated in Jakarta. And so the population growth in Jakarta actually, um, the, the population in Jakarta grow significantly during those periods. Um, but as we also know that actually Indonesia has never really had a comprehensive uh, housing program for the citizens. So that also contributes to densification mm. of the kampongs. Mm. Because as we know, actually the um, uh, population of Jakarta grew exponentially right after uh, independence, and especially and after the 1960s. Yeah. Um, but if the government never really has an affordable housing program, a working affordable housing program for the people, uh, then where would these people reside? And of course, um, that contributes to the densification of the kampong. So it's been a compounding problem for, for decades, for a really long time. Exactly. And of course, this is not just in Jakarta. I mean, any city would experience this because cities in Indonesia, not just Jakarta, started from kampung settlements. But it becomes more extreme in Jakarta because Jakarta is the place 
was the place and is still the place where most of the economy, most of the GDP are actually concentrated, right? What do we know today, like with the contemporary mm-hmm. uh, kampungs, uh, particularly with the ones that you work with, mm-hmm. what do we know about how many people actually reside in these kampungs and what are some of the demographic profiles, um, you know, of Kampung Pulau and, and, and Bukit Duri? Because, you mm-hmm. know, the popular perception has it that um, they are either you know, preman, for instance, mm-hmm. where they or or they're just uh, small peddlers, mm-hmm. um, and and some Jakartans even uh, consider these areas slum areas, right? Mm-hmm. How much of these perceptions are true? What what do we know actually about about the Kampung residents themselves? So probably to answer your question, we just use uh, one specific example mm-hmm. that has experienced also this kind of like a part of it has been evicted. So. Um, I have with me here the data from Kampung Pulau, mm-hmm. uh, particularly Erwe Dua and Erwe Tiga, mm-hmm. uh, the District Two and District Dist- Three. Yep. Um, and uh, this is uh, these are the numbers that have been compiled uh, by uh, Chile Merdeka at the time, mm-hmm. which is an NGO working with them. Yep. Yeah, it's an NGO working with them and try to mobilize for participatory uh, planning uh, to. Um, rehabilitate the kampong. Here it's saying that the um, the total um, potentially affected residents um, are um, about 3,800 households. And these are just those two districts, right? Yes. yes. And households, 3,000 households. Yeah, 3,800 3, wow. households. Okay. Um, and that is based on the data from uh, 2014. Um, and from this um, from the the ones that were evicted in the eviction last time in 2015, um, it was about uh, 25,000 square meters, and um, you can see that um, the status of the land. Um, there's a spectrum of the status of the land. Um, there's there's uh, there's some that has certificate hakmilik um, mm-hmm. or the ownership certificate. The ownership yep. certificate. Uh, there are some who has hakguna bangunan, which is like the um, second tier, right? It's well, like, like building utilization license, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which basically, eventually, you can upgrade it to become ownership, ownership certificate right. uh, at some point. Uh, some of them have after jewel burly um, the um, buying uh, and selling yeah. license yeah yeah that that was endorsed by a public notary yeah um, and uh, there are there are other kinds of uh, forms of uh, ownership of our certificates and we can see that this spectrum of land ownership it also indicates the problem that we have now right in in terms of old kampongs mm. we have to remember that these kampongs have been there for a very very long time yeah and if we see this categorization those were categories that were outlined in the law in the agrarian law in the 1960s right and so the law was actually issued after the kampongs were there and mm. so that's why you see the spectrum of land ownership yeah whether or not they're old residents or new residents, even the old residents may not have land certificates because they've been there for a long time and they've been... Passed they, down families exactly, for And they never felt that there was any problem of not having land certificates. Yeah. And as we also know that there are, there are quite some problems in for, for some of these families in processing their land certificates right. uh, in the past, be, even though there were programs to 
consolidate the certification of land in the 1970s, but not all of them actually went through that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which makes them vulnerable, uh, of course, with uh, particularly in in cases of evictions, which which have happened to them so many times, right? Like time and time again, mm-hmm. Kampung residents have been subjected to forced, forced evictions that we've seen in the news um, by various mm-hmm. municipal governments, not just recently, but mm-hmm. you know, from the 80s, 90s, you know, all the way till now. Why have you know? Jakarta governments time and time again resort to forced evictions uh, whenever uh, you know there's a new development project or cleanup um, efforts. And have there been any attempts at community consultation or mediation um, for a settlement, particularly since, like like we've talked about before, these communities have been here for a long time. Yeah, actually, evictions in Jakarta are not new, right? Yeah. Even from the 1960s, 1970s, you do have evictions. Um, in the past, um, particularly in the 19, until the 1970s, even until early 1980s, there was still this program called the Kampung Improvement Program. Okay. Um, and that program focused on the infrastructure upgrading of uh, the kampongs, uh, drainage, a... sewerage, and all that. Was this under Sadikin? Or yeah, it was under, under Sadikin. Sadikin, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although he also evicted yeah. people. Yeah? <laughs> so he did not only do the yeah. kampong improvements, <laughs> okay. but he also evicted people. Um, but there, there were those uh, programs, and these programs were supposed supposedly um, also including um, the the residents in terms of trying to decide what kind of infrastructures they need. But in Jakarta, evictions always continue. And um, after the reform, there started to be protests against evictions, right? Right. Um, Because before the 1998 reform, it was relatively more difficult to stage this uh, protest and to challenge um, the the regime at that time, I guess. So who, sorry, who who did the protest? The residents themselves or also also NGOs and activists defending their rights? Uh, Who who were protesting in the post-Arto era? um, So when I was doing my uh, dissertation research um, in 2007, Mm -hmm. um, and that time it was still Sutiosos, it was the end of Governor Sutiosos. Yeah. term, right? And it was the time for the the next governor election at the time. Eventually, Fozibo mm. won that 2007 election. Um, but I interviewed some of the activists who were involved in the in, in the anti-eviction protests, and as well as um, basically protests against the governor. Um, admittedly, there were. Um, uh, activists who sort of like facilitate these uh, these protests, mm. um, but at the same time, these were the activists who have been working together with uh, the community members. Right. So if they if they do stage protests, it was actually also it was actually a reflection right. of the, the of the concerns roots, yeah. of the grassroots. Yeah. And actually, during um, it was still during Sutioso's time, uh, one of the kampongs uh, that was. Um, that was prone to eviction uh, actually got recognition okay, um, right. from the government. They didn't get Hakmilik, but they got they this... They didn't get the land certificates. No, okay. but mm. they got this thing called the Hak Pengelolaan Lahan, HPL. So, uh, so the, the, the right to cultivate the land. The right to cultivate, to, to mm, use... Yeah, the right to use the land. Okay. Um, they also would not hesitate to actually stage protest to the mm, governor at mm, the time because mm. they they know um, that they they can 
bring up their concerns into in, in the public spaces. Right. To put it in context of you know why kampung communities and especially the issue of evictions have been a hot topic recently. Mm. You know because of the um, ahok and mm. and and him being known as the king of pengusuran or mm. the king of evictions and and the controversial mm. um, election that we've just had. Um, Ahok carried on these evictions even after signing a political contract together mm. with Jokowi in 2012 mm. when they were running together, promising not to evict some of the kampung areas, right? Mm-hmm. And yet he um, ended up doing some of the evictions that he said that he would not do. Why did he do this? And how have been the um, reactions of the kampung residents who were evicted? Um, the most controversial ones that he did, basically just because... Um, the residents could show that they actually signed the political contract not to evict them were actually Pasarikan, Pasarikan Campo just Aquarium. in the north of Jakarta. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Bukiduri. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, actually uh, the sense of betrayal, uh, the sense of being betrayed um, is very deep um, in the residents' um, minds and feelings. In the case of Bukiduri, actually um, both uh, Jokowi and Ahok came there during their campaign um, and pictures of both Jokowi and Ahok sitting in Sangar Chilibum uh, listening to presentations about their idea of Kampung Susun, you know, rehabilitation. Kampung Susun would be... um A stacked kampung. Yeah, I guess so. A <laughs> so, form of public housing uh, there. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically, these uh, kampung residents they also know that since their kampungs get more and more dense, um, there have been challenges in terms of infrastructure services as well as their quality of life. So, um, they do want some improvements to right. be done, mm. um, and probably not exactly like the Kampung Improvement Programs in the past because the Kampung Improvement Program um, didn't really change the physics of the Kampung. Right. It's just laid down the infrastructures. Right. Yeah. Uh, for some Kampungs, yes, uh, they do want this to take place, but for some others like Bukiduri at the time, uh, they imagine something more, um, something different. Okay. Um, basically going vertical to move forward right yeah going vertical um, preserve the on-site upgrading uh, so not moving elsewhere but still uh, doing it on-site mm. um, but certainly having improvements to their uh, quality of life mm. and so this this was the proposal that was presented right, to yeah. both Jokowi and Ahok when they were still campaigning um, to running for governor For Bukaduri, uh, at that time, the political contract that Jokowi signed um, was more facilitated mm-hmm. by the, um, if I'm not mistaken at that time, it was facilitated by the Urban Poor Consortium. Okay. And it was uh, it was actually also including the, um, the residents of Kampung Aquarium, which is in Pasarikan. Right. But the political contract that we saw uh, circulating and also been uh, published in the media, um, it's actually signed by Jokowi at the time. Mm-hmm. And like you said, like you rightly said, um, they promised no eviction. Uh, they promised to focus on more on-site upgrading uh, rather than uh, relocating to somewhere, especially if some, the somewhere is too far. Yeah. Um, And that is not the only political contract that Jokowi has signed because that was in 2012 when he was running for governor. He signed another one in 2014 when he was running as president. 
Right. Um, and it was a national political contract, and he signed it in Porong. Right. Um, so in uh, in during, East Java. In East Java. Affected by the mud flows. Yes. Yeah. And the third point in that political contract is geser bukan gusur, which means that on-site uh, upgrading, not eviction. Right. And so that uh, those were the promises that have been made during the campaigns, and so that's why the 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 sense of being betrayed in in these communities are uh, pretty deep when finally um, evictions uh, started to uh, happen and it happened in full steam uh, during uh, Ahok's governorship which I mean eventually took over um, the eviction governor yeah how how, um, I mean it's called a political contract right in in which the candidates sign Mm -hmm. it right but how is it legally binding? Is it? Is there? I mean, if, for instance, in the in the event mm-hmm. like this where um, they they breach the the political contract, mm-hmm. right? Can the kampung communities then do anything in order to demand? You know, mm-hmm. you know what's mm-hmm. going on here? Well, you signed this, and now you've done the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is is it anything binding at all? So that was also the question that I asked to the mm-hmm. Urban Poor Consortium, right? Yeah. Because. Um, uh, they they were very involved in actually facilitating the signing of the political contracts. Yeah. And um, Ibu Warda Hafiz, uh, who, is the, who was the coordinator of the Urban Poor Consortium, she said that the point of doing the political contract was actually for uh, social mobilization and organizing because it was very important for the urban poor to actually have an awareness of being able to organize themselves. Because if they stand individually, um, they may not get anywhere. Because basically, being poor um, is may cause you to be powerless in the city. But if you're more organized, if mm. you can mobilize, mm. then you can start being aware of your rights and uh, and know where to go and know what to do in terms of trying to do something about it. And the political contract is actually one form of doing that social mobilization and social organization. Mm. So in that sense, um, to her, the the goal of the political contract has been somewhat achieved because Mm. the fact that the contract was signed... Mm. uh, You have something on paper, right? Exactly. It signifies that a group of the urban poor, um, which is basically... um, it's quite challenging also to bring everybody together. Especially they're so diverse, like you said before. Exactly. Yeah. And they could push uh, for a political candidate to promise something yeah. to them and to facilitate their aspiration. But in terms of your question whether it's legally binding, mm-hmm. well, we've seen um, that um, there was not yet any consequences. Well, in, in the case of Ahok, yeah. and especially during the campaign, because he was questioned a lot about this, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, uh, in, uh, from Ahok's camp and also his supporters argued that, you know, the evicted kampung dwellers got compensated, you know, with low-rent apartments in new areas. Uh, but we've heard in the news and also, mm-hmm. I guess, from your your mm-hmm. experience as well, that many of these evictees are unhappy with their new settlement areas, right? Mm-hmm. Some have even returned back to mm-hmm. the areas from which they were evicted. What's the problem here? Uh, why have um, the 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 new evictees not want to stay in in their new relocated um, rent apartments? Yeah, probably to to answer that question, uh, there are several facets of it, right? Yeah. First of all, if we see the rental apartments themselves, mm. um, if you just see on the map, just to consider the distance, if we go back to the point about kampongs, right? Um, 
what kampongs are, how they came to be. Kampongs are settlements, and they were there for a reason, mm. uh, geographical reason, you know, relationship with the river, economy, and stuff like that. The location is very important because it defines who they are. It defines um, who they relate with, uh, where they can work. Like for people in Kampung Pulo, for example, a lot of them actually work in Pasar Jatinegara, which, you know, if if they were to be moved so far, it they will also lose their jobs. And uh, if they're moved to Rawabebek, like what jobs are there around Rawabebek, right? Um, and so uh, Kampong, a Kampong as a settlement, this is also increasing our own understanding of the Kampong. Because the Kampong is not just about a house, having a house in a compound with other people also having houses. Um, a house in a Kampong, uh, it is a residence, it can also be their workplace, uh, it can be their both production, reproduction space, and it's basically a very flexible sort of like arrangements of space. And their community, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and they can also employ their own neighbors, um, and so there, there is a kind of economy that is really embedded in the kampong, and that economy also relies on social relationships that happen in the kampong. Going back to uh, the, the evictions, right, mm. and, and, and um, Anis Baswedan has mm. signed also a political contract yes. with um, the evicted community saying that if elected, and indeed he has been elected, he will not be evicting them. He will help them legalize their lands and engage in more community consultations, right? right? Do you see the conditions improving then for the, these Kampung residents, particularly with this new political contract? Yeah, well, when I said before that there was no consequences uh, for Jokowi and Ahok for violating the political contract, that was more referring to the legal consequences, right? Mm. Because they couldn't be brought to court for mm. violating the, um, the political contract. But there was a consequence, right? Because the people who were actually involved in mobilizing for that political contract with Jokowi and Ahok withdraw their support for Ahok. Their so, votes too, I guess, exactly. in some cases at least. Yeah. So, so they lost, so basically Ahok lost ground in places where he violated the political contract. And these uh, places signed the new political contract with Anis his challenger, yeah. with Anis. And, um, and like I said before, um, the goal of doing the political contract was also for social mobilization, right? So it's not only for just creating something that is binding, mm. but also for the people to actually mobilize and organize themselves. At the same time, they also learn from what happened before, right? Mm. So this time, um, as I understand it, the political contract mm -hmm. itself is a more bulky document. Last time it was just like a piece of a paper, piece of paper yeah. and that you can just hold up and yeah. then you sign on it. Um, this time it actually is legally binding both to uh, Anis Sandy as well as to the kampongs and communities who are signing the political contract with okay. Anis Sandy. Yeah. So legally binding meaning that if the um, if the kampong residents as well as the communities um, who were signing this political contract could not deliver their promise, then there will be a consequence to them. What, what's, um, what are some of the things that they have to deliver, sorry? 
um, they promised that in the in the TPS mm-hmm. in the in voting the, yeah. uh, booth mm-hmm. um, where their communities are that Ani Sandi would win. Oh, that. right. Okay. So they right. promised uh, victories for Ani Sandi in their own communities. Right. So they have the responsibility to mobilize in their own communities so that uh, Ani Sandi would win, mm. in at least in their own communities. Mm. And if they deliver, then it will be legally binding for Ani Sandi to fulfill um, the right. promise in the contract. Right. And so after the election... Apparently, they delivered. And so they said that this now is the time for Anisandi to fulfill their promise. Otherwise, this document is actually mm-hmm. legally binding. So they can be sued in court. They can be sued in court. Right. Um, the wow. penalties are actually detailed in the contract, which the details are not yet released now. Okay. Uh, I think they're holding off to that um, before the on- inauguration of right. the governor. Um but they are now already starting to um, also organize for uh, participatory planning for rehabilitating their kampungs now. But whether or not Ani Sandi would fulfill the political contract, that one I think we have to still wait and see. Well, you know, here's, um, here's hoping that you know, the new incoming governor will you know, honor uh, the promises that he's made. But um, Rita Padawangi, thank you so much for, for talking to me and with such eloquence in explaining um, what what is a very complicated and often overlooked issue in Jakarta. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. And I would highly recommend that if anyone is interested in looking into, um, you know, the facts and the numbers, uh, the LBH Jakarta, the Legal Aid Foundation of Jakarta, actually have done... Um, research on the evicted communities in Jakarta and they have a lot of really uh, good uh, data on their website and in their yearly report. Actually, there are lots of uh, resources. And of course, Jakarta, so. you know, Rita's being humble here, but also Rita's writings about about <laughs> um, communities in Jakarta and also particularly about participatory planning, not just in Jakarta, but, um, but uh, you know, in, in other Southeast Asian cities like Manila. That was Dr. Rita Padawangi senior lecturer at Singapore University of Social Sciences. Talking Indonesia will return on the 20th of July. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.